I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me today in the co-host seat is author Julia Dahl. Welcome, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Now, you were very keen to be a co-host on the show. <laughs> I was willing to give you money. You were? It may, makes me wonder, are you the kind of person who will corner another writer at a party? You know, back when we used to have parties. But uh, Will you corner someone and just talk about books for hours? No, I do love love to talk to other writers. And, and you know, one of my, basically, like, my favorite weekend of the year is was BoucherCon, which is, you know, yeah. the mystery convention. Um, which I started going to right after my first book came out in, I guess it was 2014. And, you know, I couldn't believe how nice everyone was and how <laughs> welcoming, you know, all, all, all these people who theoretically are sort of competitors. And I came from the world of journalism. I'm, I've been a journalist for like 20 years. And I never felt that same like real camaraderie when I went to journalism conventions and I went to a but when I went to BoucherCon, it was just like every author was nicer than the next and like, let's go get a coffee and let me tell me about your book. And nobody, there was this sense that like, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, right? That like, yeah. if, if a lot of people like to read our work, we're all benefiting and we're all in this together. So let's just be friends. So yeah. yes, I will, you know, if, if a writer is in the room, I want to talk writing. <laughs> Well, I can't believe we ne we never ran into each other at one of these conventions, but they are so full of, of writers around every corner that it's hard to meet everyone. It is. It really is. And then like after, you, you know, you go one year and then the next year and all of a sudden you have like 50 friends and it's like right. becomes a thing of like, I have to reconnect with all my friends and then also make new friends. Like there's just not enough, you know, three nights is not enough time to do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, your Rebecca Roberts series is award-winning, and it takes place among the Hasidic Jewish community, which for many people, you know, might as well be a foreign country. Right. Uh, what drew you to that world? Well, it was really a foreign country to me, too. I'm Jewish. My mother is Jewish. My dad is not Jewish, but, and I was raised sort of both. Um, we went to church and we went to temple. So part of my, just the story of me has always been, what does it mean to be Jewish, right? Like, how Jewish are you? And what does that mean? Um, and where I grew up in, in Fresno, California, there were no Hasidic Jews. And I actually did not know that Hasidic Jews existed in the world. Until, <laughs> really, I, like I had never seen one um, until I moved to the East Coast. And all of a sudden, I'm in New York City, and I'm on the subway, and I'm seeing these people who are wearing, you know, this, this uniform of the black hat and the black coat and the women in wearing wigs and you know, everybody has this sort of very similar flat shoes and long skirts. And I was like, these people are Jewish like me, but they're nothing like me. And I just got really fascinated with like what that world was like, because it was so different from my own. It was kind of like this secret world. And I was just totally fascinated with sort of when it comes in contact with the rest of the world, how does that happen? Well, and now you have a new standalone coming out yes. later this year, The Missing Hours. Yes. Was there any nerves in leaving the comfort of a series? No. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that's not true. Yes, in that, you know, uh, for when you when you have a series like the main character is someone you know really well. There's a safety net there. Like I know Rebecca, I know what she'll do, you know, in certain situations. And then this new book, yeah, exactly, I didn't know these people. I had to get to know them. But I also really was restless with Rebecca. Like, I love her books and I want to write more of them. But I had been, 
writing about her world for 10 years and it was just, I wanted to do something else. Like I felt like I had other stories to tell. Yeah. And I had just a ton of fun writing this book. It was a, in a way it was a struggle because I always knew the story that I wanted to tell in this book, which is basically about a, a young woman who has like a very bad night, gets very drunk and has an act of violence enacted upon her. And it's sort of the aftermath of that, what happens to her and her family and the craziness that ensues. And I always knew I wanted to tell that story, but it was a struggle for me to figure out how to tell it correctly, whose point yeah. of views and what pacing and all that stuff. So, but once I sort of cracked it, I'd say I like cracked it in the last six months, it's been, mm. I'm really like, I'm just super excited about it. Well, and you uh, delved into your own Jewish history for for this first set of books and now clearly delving into your own history of, of blackout drunks, right? <laughs> it's true. I have never blacked out, but there have been at least a couple of times where I wish I had blacked out because I wish I didn't have to remember the utterly embarrassing stuff. But it's true. So it's about a, a girl who basically gets blackout drunk and, and is assaulted. And she kind of is trying to piece together what happened. And I have had in college and after many too many experiences um, of being so drunk that I couldn't do anything. I mean, like I'm like lying on the floor and I think about it now as, you know, a mom and as I was really lucky, like there, you know, I was around strangers sometimes, or I was around, you know, men who didn't hurt me. And it was just lucky that I was around, you know, people like that. I didn't even know that well, who, helped me home or helped me up or got me in a cab instead of taking advantage of me. But that's just luck, you know? Yeah. Well, we're excited about that. That's good. Uh, <laughs> super, it's, super happy. It's <laughs> perfect for that. Well, there's a reason that it's not coming out in the middle of summer, no, right? No, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's a nice fall read. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk to our first guest. What do you say? Sounds great. All right. Dana Stabenow is the prolific author of the Kate Shugak books and the Liam Campbell series. And she has a new Liam Campbell novel out, Spoils of the Dead, where Dana takes us back into the wilds of her native Alaska for another suspenseful mystery. Julia, have you ever traveled to Alaska? No, I have not. I don't like the cold. (laughs) (laughs) I avoid it at all costs. You live in New York. Yeah, I know. I know. That's... That's too cold for us here in Southern California. So yeah, I guess Alaska is, that's a step above that. It really is. (laughs) Dana, Spoils of the Dead is the latest in the Liam Campbell series. And like all of your books, it takes place in your current location, Alaska. Now, Alaska is the only of the 50 states I have not visited yet. So your novels will have to suffice for now for my my tourism. (laughs) But... Am I getting the full experience through the, through your books, through this series and the Kate Shugak books? With the caveat, I never met a story I couldn't improve. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I, the best compliments I get are from Alaskans who say I get it right. And I've had a lot of those compliments, so I'm very proud. So, so you're saying I don't even need to make the trip? No, that's not what I'm saying. You do need <laughs> to make You have to come up and see if I got it right. That's also uh, what I tell people. Ah. <laughs> uh. That's good. Well, but now the trouble is, is that if if I'm reading your books correctly, the minute I land, there will be a murder. (laughs) Well, (laughs) again, (laughs) I never met a story that I couldn't improve. (laughs) 
Well, you can forgive me for uh, for thinking that only terrible things happen if if we go only by the stories you tell. Well, it's like, you know, I mean, it's like the, it's the Jessica Fletcher syndrome. That's one of the reasons that I early on, very early on, I think it was the third Kate Chuyak novel, I started moving um, Kate around the state. I mean, there's only so many murders you can commit in a community before yes. things just start to feel a little ridiculous. It's also one of the reasons that I moved Liam Campbell to a different location from the last four books. It's also true in that Alaska state troopers move from post to post around the state of Alaska. There's only, I think the last time I checked, only 143 of them. Oh, wow. So they're spread pretty thin on the ground. So that sort of tees up my question because I was going to ask about Kate and Liam. So you've had, this blows my mind, 22 novels that are Kate novels. And you keep returning to her while Liam only pops up now and then. What separates a Liam idea from a Kate idea? Well, practicality, for one thing. The publisher didn't want to publish any more Liam Campbell novels. So, And they did want to publish Kate Chugak novels. The different publisher did want to publish Kate Chugak novels. That's one reason why I left them. And then I was doing other things as well. I did the two Coasty thrillers. I've uh, started a new series that's set in Alexandria in the time of Cleopatra. Ask me if I got that right. Wow. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's 2,000 years ago. I can't even tell you. But going back to the, the Liam Campbell series, um, in the, uh, I think it was the 19th Kate Chugach novel, Liam Campbell himself came to the park where Kate lives and asked for help on a case that he couldn't investigate it himself because his wife was personally involved. So Kate goes to Newenham, which was Liam's former post. So I got to revisit those characters. And then, of course, you know, the cat was out of the bag after that. All the Dana Maniacs said, oh, we want another new Liam. We want a new Liam. And I'm like, oh, all right, okay. <laughs> that must be nice to have to uh, write a whole book based on reader demand. <laughs> Well, I mean, once I had revisited the characters, it was like, yeah, let's see what they're up to. Let's see, you know, let's see what happens next in their lives. I I live down here in Los Angeles and Julie is out there in, in New York uh, commuting into the city all the time. I have to wonder, would a detective from one of our big cities be more out of place in Alaska or would Liam be more out of place down in L.A. or New York? I think Liam would fit in anywhere. And I think Jim would fit in anywhere. I think Kate would not. Mm. And I think why would not. As to somebody coming up from outside, it would be a steep learning curve. And it would depend on where they were stationed, too. Anchorage is just like, I mean, it's not just like, but it's very similar to many other big towns. There's, it's about, I mean, it's the biggest town in Alaska. It's nothing compared to New York or Los Angeles. <laughs> it's, um, what is it, like 300,000 and change people. And, uh, but it's that's still, nothing. The thing they say, say about Anchorage is that it's 20 minutes from Alaska. I don't know that that's necessarily <laughs> true. <laughs> but um, if they were stationed in Anchorage, it wouldn't be... I don't think the learning curve would be quite so steep. If they threw them into the bush, oh my, yes, they would be, <laughs> if they could subsume their own egos to listen to the locals and do what they said, they'd be fine. But I don't know how many people would do that or know to do it for that matter. Yeah. So speaking of sort of the locals, the, there aren't that many locals. You know, if you set a novel in New York City, there are, you know, 8 million possible suspects. But up where you are, does the sort of spareness of the population ever present problems when you're plotting a murder mystery and thinking about, are, are there fewer suspects? And, and does everyone always know everybody else's business? There aren't any secrets in Alaska, really. <laughs> <laughs> that is the big lie of all my books. 
<laughs> I think I told somebody one time, what other state do you know where Alaskans are on a first name basis with the local fish and game person? I mean, seriously. Yeah. And, and the local volcanologist, maybe Hawaii, but Alaska, so far as I know, is the only other state. We're on a first name basis. I mean, we call our senators, our U.S. senators, we call them Lisa and Dan and our representative, Don, and everybody knows who that means. And when you meet them, if you try to address them by their title, they'll shut you down and say, my name is Dan or Don or Lisa. <laughs> it's a very collegial maybe even parochial state. We all know each other. We don't always get along, but we certainly all know each other. But that's got to be a, a problem when you're trying to develop a, a mystery. If you, Like you say, if you want to get it right and you want to get it something that the locals are going to say, yep, you, you nailed it, Dana. But then is that the one thing they can see through? And they're like, no, 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 that would never happen because I know exactly who's messing around after midnight. Most cops always know who done it. In real life, cops almost, it's whether they can prove it or not is the problem. Uh There aren't any real cop mysteries in life. I mean, sure, there are some. And those are the ones that we always read about. Every cop I've ever talked to, every um, police officer, every state trooper, they generally always know who did it. But like I say, it's proving it's a, that is the problem. Then, then that gives me a, a little bit of hope that I can get away with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So Liam Campbell is back, and like like we talked about, he he comes and he goes. But do you think Liam has twenty two books in him, like Kate? No, I don't. No. For one thing, for one thing, guys, shocker, I'm sixty eight years old. So <laughs> no, <laughs> and I'm just getting started. And I'm writing, I'm writing other things as well. You know, I'm still writing the K2GAC series, although less often because now I have to, you know, I'm, I'm really into the Eye of Isis novels, the one set in Alexandria and the time of Cleopatra. And I'm writing the second one now. You know, I just want, I want to make time for doing other things. So I doubt very much that there's 22 Liam Campbell novels <laughs> in me. Oh my God. <laughs> Eric, can I ask a, a follow-up question about the Eye of Isis? Oh, always, yeah. What's your research process like on that? You know, I mean, some of it, obviously, obviously, like you have to do some research, but some of it's just putting your head into this other world. How, what's, do you have strategies for that? How do you kind of dive into a time and a place so far away? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, a couple of friends and I, there, I saw that there was going to be a Cleopatra exhibit in the Field Museum in Chicago. Oh God, when, I God, it must've been back in the 90s or at least the early aughts. And I've always been interested in Cleopatra's character because I never feel felt like she got a good, you know, there was never a good take on Cleopatra in my humble opinion. Not that I, you know, have any basis for saying that. So I said to a couple of friends, let's go to Chicago. And we walked through there and it was radicalizing for me. Um, oh. For one thing, all of Cleopatra's history is written by guys who were in the pay of Caesar Augustus. So Uh, not exactly unbiased. And in the meantime, I was writing what I could sell, which was the Kate Chugak series, the two thrillers, et cetera, et cetera. And then, I don't know what year it was, Stacey Schiff wrote an autobiography, a biography of uh, Cleopatra. And I made my book club read it. And it reiterated many of the things that I had seen in the exhibit. And I thought, okay, now's the time. And I sat down and I wrote the, The Death of an Eye. Well, I, I love the idea that it's not a new phenomenon. It's literally thousands of years old that men have been co-opting women's stories and getting it wrong. No kidding. 
Oh God, yes. I mean, she's the she's the you know the woman tempted me and I ate it is the story, and it's an old old story. And in my opinion, not non historiographer that I am, non scholar that I am too. Let me make that clear. It is the wrong story. Well, Dana, this has been a wonderful conversation, and uh, I'm convinced now that when I finally do make it to Alaska. I'm going to follow your advice and I'm going to look up the locals and you're going to be the first door I knock on. This fine. You've got my email address, Eric. You, you know, we're going to be there. <laughs> and Julia, same for you. I, I would love it. So cool. Well, next up is author and forensic science expert, Jennifer Gracer Dornbush. And Jennifer's new book, Hole in the Woods, is inspired by a true case and utilizes her extensive knowledge of forensics for a mystery steeped in real world details. Now, Jennifer is also a highly sought speaker and she gives advice and consultation to writers who want to get the forensics in their books right. Now, Julia, Jennifer grew up with her medical examiner father and saw plenty of crime scenes as a kid, which has to be crazy. I, when you were a kid, did you ever run across a dead body? No, <laughs> but I kind of wish I had. I feel like it would have been what? much more interesting childhood. Like, you know, like <laughs> stand, stand by me. No, right? yeah. That would have been a cool childhood. My childhood was, I mean, pr- happily, I guess, pretty boring. Um, <laughs> I would have liked to, maybe a dead body to mix it up. I don't know, but she had him like in her house. Yeah, that is that. I mean, but obviously, like, she's turned it into such cool to work, right? There you go. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you're going to see a dead body, <laughs> make she the could, best of it. You could either become Dexter or a novelist. <laughs> Julia is a journalist, so we are going to give you the uh, the two pronged assault here, and she takes no prisoners. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I'm ready for the assault. <laughs> and, we, and we were just, uh, before you joined in, we were just talking about uh, the, the different guests that we get and how sometimes authors are, are not always the best on a microphone. And sometimes they can be quiet and introverted and used to working alone. But I have high hopes because oh, you are a public yeah. speaker and yes. you know your way. So uh, no pressure, but we are expecting big things. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm feeling pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jennifer, your novel, Hole in the Woods, is inspired by a true case. And I'm always fascinated by people who can take the spark of an idea out of real life and spin it out into a a, a fictional story. So how much did you use from the actual case or or was that just the spark of of the story, the inspiration? I would say if I had to put a percentage, I'd say 60, 40, 60 real, 40 fictional. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I had to leave a lot of things out, of course. The general structure plot of the case is fairly close. Um, I took sort of the top 10 investigational clues or like trails of evidence that the real investigators were able to piece together to actually solve the case. And I used most of those. I created a couple. Um, but then like the care, like the, the main character, Riley St. James, the detective, she's completely fictional. Or, or is she you in disguise? Gosh, she's way cooler than me (laughs) (laughs) and a lot shorter. (laughs) So you obviously grew up with forensic science, like literally in your house. So your depiction of forensic science is accurate in a way. 
you know, probably most novels aren't, few novels are. What do you feel like is the big thing that most writers who dabble in forensic science get wrong about it? You know, because I did literally grow up with it on my kitchen table, I can't not think authentically. Like, I just sort of, I know it sounds weird, but it's just, it's just like what I breathed. And so I just sort of innately kind of know. Obviously, there's things I have to look up because it's a science and it's changing and growing and evolving. But it's it's very interesting. Like, I, I'm not one who like looks for, oh, you, you know, like to point out, oh, you did it wrong. But I think the thing I find what people... um people skim over, I guess, or it's just not going deep enough or kind of relying on what they've heard or seen on TV or read in, in novels, just sort of like accepting that as truth. And the, the truth is when you dig in, truth is way stranger and more interesting than fiction <laughs> <laughs> like, and can make your work so much more authentic and interesting. And one thing that I think is misused a lot, and we have to, and I do it because you have to, is time, right? The time right. frame of how things happen mm. in the real forensic world, as you guys know, it takes a long time for things like pathology tests or toxicology tests or just gathering evidence and then getting it tested in a lab or like ballistics or any, any DNA testing, any of that takes quite a while. And we just don't have the luxury of time in film and television and in our novels. We can't wait six weeks for a result. Right. <laughs> so. Right. Well, it, it, you bring up an interesting point that I hadn't even really considered is is the changing of the technology. Because I think forensics is one of those things that it's it's a pretty rapidly evolving science. And if you do, you know, if I went back to season one of CSI... And I try to rely on like, oh, I, I can learn a lot from what they're doing here. It's it, it might be all different, mm -hmm. you know, 20 years later, right? It could be. It's funny. It's like, yes and no. Okay. DNA, obviously, is the thing that has changed and is evolving mm. the fastest and quickest. And just use being able to use technology to look at certain things and, and or map pieces of evidence or things on a body or at a crime scene. That's probably the thing that's moved the quickest. But when you look at the actual technique, it's pretty much the same. Like, let's just say Sherlock Holmes, like how he, uh, techniques of observation and how you compare things in order right. to get from, you know, original individual characteristics to general characters, like all that is, is pretty much the same technique. It's just our way of looking at it has expanded and sometimes gotten quicker because of technology. Yeah. So well, yes and, I, and no. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess, yeah, I guess there's always going to be constants like, you know, the, the development of, uh, you know, maggots on a corpse is yeah. going to be pretty consistent over the course of history. <laughs> yeah. Maggots have not evolved much, you guys. You know? <laughs> I mean, talk Thank about God. It. Right. <laughs> I know. Like, who knows where that could go? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so you speak about this, you write about it, you, you utilize it uh, clearly in, in your novels, you, you consult uh, for scripts, you, you write screenplays and TV scripts. Does it ever feel odd to you to be the expert in all things death? Um, yes, yeah, weird. Like I don't, do you want to be an expert in death? I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just, I just lived it so much. You know, I, you, we always tend to think of experts as those who have gone to school for years and years and years and worked in the field. Um, and that isn't necessarily me, but I did, I was privy to so much. And then having studied it now as an adult, I don't know, people had to kind of point it out to me, honestly. Like they're huh. like my friends or people that would get to know me be like, 
you seem to know a lot about this. What's going on? Because I didn't really talk about it much, you know, and um, until I really started to marry it to my writing. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess I do know quite a bit about this. That's a little scary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I don't think about it that way. I just think about it as sort of the fabric of my past and my being, I guess. Someone said to me the other day, I don't think you realize how unique you are. (laughs) I was like, is that a compliment? (laughs) Yes, it's totally a compliment. (laughs) Okay. So you, okay, so you know lots about forensics, but what do you, when you're writing this book, for example, what do you have to seek out help with? What don't you know about when you're writing? Yeah, a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Forensics is a ginormous field. I mean, think about it. Like people dedicate their entire careers and lives to just fingerprinting. Um, you know, or just DNA, just ballistics. And it, so I, I do have to research a lot. And fortunately, as I've grown up in this world and, and studied it later as an adult, I've gotten to know a lot of people in the field. So I love, love, love talking with people who work in the specialty. By far, that's where I get the most, the best, most authentic, most interesting information and Julie, you probably understand this too, being a reporter and a journalist, like the more, the deeper and the more layered your story is when you actually start talking to people who live and breathe it every day. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So f- in the new novel, Hole in the Woods, I mean, did you find it difficult to have to work to out suspense the real life of the case? I mean, cause you're, you're, yeah. you're weaving the story and, and you're trying to heighten the suspense. You're trying to make it put it into a structure for the reader and but you're also facing this real life case that was compelling enough to drive you down the road to write a whole book about it Mm -hmm. that was always honestly that's a great way of putting that was always the challenge because I knew about it since I was 18 and had followed it with my family and it was just sort of this haunting story but I didn't know a lot of the details because that it was a cold case they weren't public knowledge and even my dad who who had done the in, the forensic investigation and and autopsy on the girl did not tell us certain things thank goodness so there were a lot of things um that were discovered and so as I sat through the trial for 3 weeks and was discovering all this I'm like oh my goodness there's a, such a story here I I kind of decided at that point like I to keep the suspense going because I knew I wanted to tell a story where, um, you know, there's different ways to tell a mystery. And one way is where you kind of hide who did it, the whodunit you find right. out at the end. And I knew I didn't want to do that because I wanted it to be more about everybody knows, but how the heck do we catch them? How do, and <laughs> before they do something worse or I thought as, and I almost just kind of came naturally. I was like, in order to heighten the suspense, suspense, I want to tell it from lots of points of view because everybody's, Mm -hmm. the whole thing is everybody was hiding a secret in this case. Uh So when you start to get to know the characters and the secrets that they're hiding and nobody's talking to each other. And then you have this woman who comes in and she's trying to like unveil all these secrets. I think that's where I was trying to build in the suspense. So given all that you witnessed growing up, do you have like an endless backlog of potential stories for the next book and the next book and the next book and the next book? I, I do. I, I need more hours in my day <laughs> or I just need to not sleep or something. Cause I, I do. I just, yeah, I've never had knock on wood. I've never had a problem with writer's block. I got the best advice one time. Somebody said, um, there is no such thing as writer's block if you start to research. 
And I love things based on true stories. There's an endless source out there. There's endless stories of my own in my head, you know, from just things we witnessed and experienced. So I think too, at one one time, I think this was a Flannery O'Connor quote. She said something like, basically anybody who's made it to the age of like eight or 10 has endless stories to tell for the rest of their lives. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yep, that's really true. (laughs) Well, uh, Jennifer, the expectations were high and you came through. Well done, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. I can go have another cup of coffee. <laughs> well, congratulations on the book, Hole in the Woods. And uh, thank you for, uh, for sharing your expertise. And uh, I mean, as much as I don't wish this much knowledge of death on anyone, uh, I'm, I'm glad at least you're holding it for the rest of us to utilize. Oh, my, my pleasure. Might as well make use of, you know, what I've been given, the gift <laughs> I've been given. <laughs> well, Julia, I'm going to step away uh, now for a brief period and go talk with our resident book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, and they're going to tell us about some more books that we need. And it's going to make me weep because I have no more shelf space. I don't know about you. I, I have a very large TBR pile, yeah. Have you read anything great lately? Well, right now, yes, I have. I just finished Lydia Millet's new book, A Children's Bible, which is about this like group of kids, like teenagers who goes on sort of like a, an Airbnb vacation with their parents and they kind of go feral. The parents like basically just do drugs and have sex all the time and the kids are like in charge. It's, it's actually a really <laughs> amazing story. And then now I just started um, John Vircher's book from I think it was last year, Three Fifths, that I'm loving. Oh, I love that yeah, book. Yeah, 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 it's great. Excellent. Well, let's see what Dan and Kate have to recommend this time. Dan and Kate, welcome back. Uh, I know it's cold and snowy, so you're trapped inside with nothing to do but read. But before we get to the books, uh, I did want to do a quick check-in on the writer type's mascot, Marlo, because I know he had uh, had a little procedure, did he not? Yeah, he did. Yeah, it it was time. He has now become genderless. <laughs> <laughs> and all he's doing is picking up satellite signals with the, with that damn cone. So. <laughs> So it's just giving you that look like you have betrayed him. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. How, how could you do this to me? Uh, well, Kate, I know you've been reading the latest from uh, a friend of ours who went from a quirky Midwestern writer to now a superstar bestseller. Is that right? Yes. And Edgar Award nominee. Ooh. Yes. Uh, one Jess Lowry. I came to know her through her Murder by Month series. And now she's transitioned into being a, an outstanding suspense writer. Uh, her latest is called Bloodline, and this one she set in 1968 in North Central Minnesota in a small town where a woman named Joan and her fiancé, Deck, have returned to his hometown to, to set up their life. Joan was mugged while living in Minneapolis, and it really kind of rattled her, so she and Deck decided to, to move to a smaller town, a little bit more simple, and they thought this would be a great time to do it because Joan is pregnant with their child. Hmm. They get there to the city of Lilydale and things are just off. You you can't really put your finger on it, but like everybody on their block on Mill Street really seems too interested in her pregnancy and a little bit too into their business. But is it because they're legitimately interested or is it just small town? Everybody's all up in your business anyway. Right. And 
so Joan starts kind of peeling back some of the layers of, of the city. She's a former reporter for the, the Minneapolis Tribune magazine. So she's got some, some chops when it comes to reporting and she just digs a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper and finds that things in the city are not what they appear. Don't go digging if you don't want to know. Right, exactly. <laughs> just be happy that everyone is happy for you to be pregnant, Joan. Yeah. Well, now, I know Jess's previous book, Unspeakable Things, was based on some events from her own past. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if that's the case for this. I mean, 1968, it, it could be. I, I don't know if a lot of people know this. Jess Lowry is 76 years old. <laughs> and she looks amazing. Amazing. Yes. I think she's got a painting in her attic of some sort. <laughs> but uh, do, do you know if this is based on anything real or is this uh, purely from her brain? It's launched from uh, in a, a photo that she had seen. Like there was a, in a, a little boy who was abducted in central Minnesota. And the only photo that was available of him or that she could see or that she found of him is him in the sailor suit. So Jess uses that photo and abduction of that little boy in the sailor suit so, I, I knew you'd have an answer for this, Kate. That's, well, this is why you have the job, because I can ask a question like that, Johnny on the spot with an answer. Boom. Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, I, I know you're a big fan of Unspeakable Things. Where does this rank in uh, Jess's work? Another home run? Another home run. Um, I think this one definitely rises to the, to the same bar uh, as Unspeakable Things. I think Bloodline, she really does an amazing job teasing out little bits of the city she splices in these vignettes and off chapters where you're looking ahead to after Joan has had her baby and things are not going well kudos to to Jess Lowry for creating this amazing suspense novel that that I think a lot of people are going to enjoy reading while they're stuck in their houses with their loved ones and hopefully not pregnant exactly exactly <laughs> Well, Dan, you uh, have been digging into a book from a writer that I've, I haven't heard much from uh, in a while, but I know we both enjoyed his last book, Matthew Iden. Yes. Uh, Matthew Iden uh, has just come out with um, the latest in his long-running Marty Singer uh, series. So this oh. is actually, I think, book eight. Um, it's called Chasing the Pain. And like I know when the last time we talked, I think my batting average was... 0.001 with uh, <laughs> with uh, success with with completing books and just finding yeah. something to enjoy. Dan, um, there's still there's still snow on the ground. It's too early for baseball metaphors. No, the Super Bowl is done, so it's automatically baseball season. Oh, is that is that how it works? Okay, yeah. This is these just these are the rules, man. Got it. Chasing the pain really knocked me out of my slump. I really, really, really enjoyed this book. So Matthew Iden has created this uh, his lead character, Marty Singer who is a a retired police officer. And in this book, he's called upon by the ex-wife of a missing U.S. Marshal. She says, this guy who you've only met once or twice um, is missing. His last communication said, if something's happened to me, you got to go find Marty Singer. So right off the bat, we're basically caught up in the same mystery that Singer is. Like, what is the reason for this? What's happening? um, And what leads us on on the, the chase? Aiden is a pro in dishing out exactly the amount of information we need while keeping the, the story going. So definitely enjoyed this one. Nice. And Chasing the Pain. I mean, I, that, that could be the title of your autobiography, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want, just need that taste. Yes. 
Well, it's a hell of a title. I really enjoyed it. Chasing the pain in my lower back. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you come out here and shovel in the minus 20 below? We'll see who's laughing. Winter is coming to a close. Trust me, guys. I know it doesn't look like it from where you are, but spring is on the way. So uh, get in a lot of reading now before you uh, can be out in the sunshine. What is the temperature in Los Angeles? Uh, today, it's a, a low 70s. I don't know. I think we're going to go for a hike later on the little bluff overlooking the ocean. Son of a bitch. <laughs> well, Julia, our final guest today is author Paul Vidic, whose latest novel, The Mercenary, is the latest of his Cold War spy novels. And he's written about the Cold War in the 1950s and now takes us into the 1980s in another tense novel of spycraft and shifting loyalties. Julia, you're younger than I am, but do you remember the 80s when we all thought we were going to die at any moment in a nuclear war? Yeah, well, my big memory of the Cold War is really the end. Like, I have very vivid memories of watching the wall come down in, like, my, I guess it would have been, like, my junior high classroom and stuff. Yeah, well, the threat of imminent death—that was—that uh, was a good, good time. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, thanks for joining us on Writer Types today. You're here with your latest, *The Mercenary*, which is a Cold War spy novel, and this type of novel never seems to go out of style, right? I mean, despite the Cold War being over for decades, but it makes me think. I mean, do you, are you of the opinion that the Cold War never really ended? Well. Some things ended, you know, the Soviet Union um, disappeared and we've got Russia in its place. Some of the adversarial features of Soviet Union-US relations are gone. But uh, on the other hand, the thing that I think distinguished the Cold War spy novel was this tension basically among in the spies on both sides between sort of the, the obligations uh, and duties of the work and moral qualms that um, they may have had. And so this notion of character in spy novel, I think continues to um, excite us. So the politics now are different, but the character you know, continues to entertain us. And I think offer a sort of instruction about how, how we look at good and evil in the world. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I've, you can write a thousand novels about uh, characters struggling with their own morality, right? Exactly. That never, in fact, so it's, it is an enduring theme in all literature, I believe. So your and your previous books had been 1950s Cold War spies, but the new one is in the 80s. Why did you move the action from the 50s to the 80s? This is uh, The Mercenaries, the fourth book, and each of my books... Uh, moves forward in time. So the first was 53, then 59. Uh, the Coldest Warrior was 75, and this one is 1985. So in some ways, I was interested in watching the principal character, George Mueller, develop as he grew older. And so in the first novel, he's um, sort of a reluctant player in the CIA, having gone to Yale and, and inadvertently found himself in the CIA. And then in this novel, 1985, he's risen in the CIA. So he's sort of given up his regrets and his reluctances. And he's, um, you know, a, a dedicated uh, uh, member of the intelligence community. 
that journey he was on from sort of the ambivalent young man to now sort of the dedicated spy was interesting to explore. Well, you write about Moscow in a way that seem, seems genuine, though I have no idea since I've never been there. Uh, and the mercenary is, uh, once again, in the, in the snowy winter of Moscow. I mean, wh- First of all, why doesn't anybody ever write about Moscow in the summer? I'm sure it's a lovely place, right? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. I'm sure. <laughs> there, there, are, there are novels. I think Anna Karenina, parts of it take place in the summer. But I think See? spy novels, by just their nature of being gritty and operating in the shadows, winter just feels more atmospheric. Yeah, no, you're right. It, it feels appropriate. But now, uh, the way you write about it, it leads me to believe that surely you have traveled there and gotten your view from right there on the ground in front of the Kremlin, right? Regrettably, I haven't. Um, wow. It's And I have to say, when I first set organizing this book, I had every intention of traveling to Moscow. But then the pandemic hit. Mm. And uh, I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, can I really expect to credibly present a city that I've never been to? And in in some ways, I I came to believe I could because the city I'm representing is a city that doesn't exist anymore. The Mm. Moscow of 1985 is not the Moscow of today. Right. And I wasn't looking at presenting Moscow writ large. I was looking at presenting the the contained world of Moscow seen from the eyes of the characters in the book. And then I did a ton of research, probably at three levels. Uh, One was I read biographies and autobiographies of KGB officers, some of whom were exfiltrated, some of whom who defected. And that gave me a, a deep sense of, you know, what it was like to, if you were Russian, living in Russia at that time. And then I spent a lot of time reading newspaper articles, looking at uh, pictures of the city. And then what I would typically do is I would travel to a city, as I said, and I'd do what is the equivalent of location scouting. Um, I wasn't wasn't able to do that. Um, But I was able to use Google Maps in a way that virtually put me on the streets of Moscow. It's like you were a spy. I was a spy. You're literally looking at satellite imagery. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, Google Maps, this isn't the case for every city, but in Moscow particularly, they have that camera that sits on top of the car that moves through streets and you get three-dimensional perspectives. So I was able to, to walk the paths that my characters walk so do you think, you know, in the work you were doing with the, the, you know, the Google Google Maps, but also when you're just inhabiting the mind of a spy, you're kind of role playing a little. Do you think you would have been a good spy? Or maybe you are a spy and we don't know. That's always the thing about like the CIA, uh-huh. right? Like all these people are in the CIA and they're spies, but we don't know. <laughs> Most people who work in the CIA work in a bureaucracy in Langley, Virginia. Right. And they deal with analyses and they deal with intelligence reports. And while I never worked in the CIA, I did work in a large media bureaucracy, uh, Time Warner. And many of the things I did in Time Warner were not unlike the things that, you know, people in a bureaucracy like the CIA do, which wow. is, you know, you have, you know, you've got a martial support behind the projects that you're trying to pitch 
you've, you've got budgetary concerns. And all of that is sort of knowing how to manage your way through the labyrinths of a large organization. The answer to the question is I probably would be, would have been, if I had chosen to go into the CIA, I probably would have been successful in that because I was successful in, you know, corporate America. Well, I think we can tell from the titles of your books, there's an honorable man, the good assassin, the coldest warrior, and the mercenary. These all point to the individual at the center of the story. When you're writing, do you really strive to single out sort of that individual character in the midst of all this giant government machinery that's surrounding the characters? Yeah, and that's exactly what I try to do. I, I try and pick up themes that then I place into the characters. So the themes that I work with uh, are betrayal, trust, honor, integrity, revenge, you know, all, all themes that, in fact, all great literature addresses. And the titles are, are really important for a book. Um, I once had a teacher, Rivka Gulchin, who, who said, titles are sort of like the shading, the lighting in the room. They offer the shading. It, it sort of gives you a sense of what you're going to look forward to. Yeah. And as you pointed out, in my case, the titles all sort of refer to a character and something about that character. Totally. Is there, so you're writing a new novel now. Is there, do you think, is there a sort of Cold War type novel that could be set now amid the, you know, the different tensions between the U.S. and Russia? Uh, Absolutely. The, The tensions between the two countries now the, the tactics and the technology being applied are different, but and, and the, the front line of engagement is different, but the, um, the work of each country to undermine the other is ultimately the same. And I think what you're seeing now with Russian hacking, Russian misinformation, is just an extension of what the Soviets were doing you know, in the 50s and 60s. And this whole notion of misinformation has actually been around for a very long time. So I think somebody who was interested in exploring a, a character-driven novel of tensions between Russia and the United States now, I think would find uh, a lot of fertile soil. Well, and I have to guess it would still be set in winter, though. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> Well, Julia, that's it. Congratulations. You did it. That's the end of the episode. Not too bad, right? I made it. You did, and you did fantastically. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I, do I have to pay you now when this is over? No, no, no. Okay. This, this this one's on the house. Okay. You should ask questions for a living. <laughs> Thank you. I'm. That's what I always tell. I, I teach journalism now and I tell my students, like, being a journalist is awesome. It gives you license to be nosy for a living. <laughs> Well, okay. How, how did I do? Could I be a reporter? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can give people the the real third degree and uncover secrets and catch them in a lie. That yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and but you 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 have sort of a um, an ease about you that's like disarming. People want to tell you stories, and that's always what a journalist wants. You want you want to be the kind of person that people want to tell stories to. Oh, good. No, that's uh, that's a compliment, and I appreciate it. But for a split second there, I thought I was going to get like, oh, you have a very sexy voice. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm definitely not going there. <laughs> 
damn it. <laughs> well, we are really looking forward to The Missing Hours, uh, your book out later this year. And I want to thank you for stopping by and helping me out today. Where can people keep up with you on the uh, the old interwebs there? You can always follow me on Twitter. I'm just Julia Dahl. And then on Facebook, I'm Julia Dahl Author. Well, people can always find me at ericbeatner.com. Uh, my latest book is called Two in the Head. People seem to like it. It's gotten a couple of good reviews. That's always very gratifying, right? Such a when, great uh, title. Such yeah, a when, great when title. You, when you finally release something into the world and people don't hate it. Yes. <laughs> yes. So much anxiety before and then like the, the sigh of relief. <sighs> well, and you can always get writer types delivered right to you if you subscribe. And you can find us at, on Twitter at writer types. Well, Julia, I'll let you go. Uh, what's the rest of your day like? Uh, are you going to go read? I am going to go empty the dishwasher and probably make lunch for my family. <laughs> it's <laughs> pandemic life. 